Hello, listeners. Welcome to our deep dive into Toronto's real estate scene this fall, 2023. I'm your host, Ian Busher. The burning question, should first-time buyers jump into the Toronto property market right now? Today, we'll explore the ripple effects of recent interest rate hikes by the Bank of Canada, examine the uptick in new listings, and look at how home prices are trending. It's the second week of August 2023. We are Fox Marin Associates, Toronto's most innovative and active brokerage in central and downtown Toronto. We aren't here to regurgitate boring stats. You can find those anywhere. We are here to share what we see going on in the Toronto real estate market in real time on a weekly basis so that you can be in the know and make informed decisions. If you're interested in getting an up-to-the-moment opinion on what's happening in Toronto real estate right now and learning about what's going down boots on the ground before it becomes a stat, well, then you're in the right place. My name is Ian Busher, and I'm a broker with the Fox Marin team. Keeper number handy, this is Corey Marin, in-house hype girl and resident expert listing broker. A good man to know, of course, Mr. Ralph Fox, our analytical investor-driven <laughs> macro picture watcher. And a rarity in these parts, a special guest. Please help me welcome, with a polite golf clap, another Fox Marin legend, Ooh. broker Jessica Spillis. Hello, hello. Yes. I'm so excited to be here. We do this every week, so hit that subscribe button and join us for the latest updates every seven days. With rising rents and tightening market coupled with economic uncertainty is now the time to buy instead of rent. As we foresee long-term continuing increased immigration, anemic new supply, and a Bank of Canada pivot at some point, how should first-timers navigate the market? If you're a bit overwhelmed by the constant barrage of sensationalist media and advice from the ill-informed, you have nothing to worry about. Fear not, we've got your back. For today's important discussion, we've decided to bring in the big guns from the Fox Marin team. As introduced already, our very own Jessica Spillis, broker, VP of sales, and the queen of acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. So without <laughs> further ado, let me hand this over to Corey and let's dive into it. How are you, Corey? I'm so good. I'm so happy to have a female on the today. It's been boys club. So Jess... You're no longer outnumbered. Yeah, exactly. Jess, it's so great to have you here. Um, and you. it's true, you are the queen of acquisitions, uh, the queen of buying in the downtown real estate market. So it'd be great for our viewership to know a little bit more about you. So could you just give everybody a high-level view about how long you've been with the team, how long you've been in, in the business, a little bit of your uh, past uh, sales history. And uh, I think that'd be a great place to start so everyone can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Well, for starters, how long I've been in the industry is the exact same amount of time that I've been with the team. <laughs> so it worked out quite well. Um, first off, I am very excited to be here. I've had a lot of buyer clients ask me, why aren't you on the podcast? When am I going to see you on the podcast? And I always say, well, it's because I'm out on the road with you guys all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, happy clients that get to see a familiar face. But um, a little bit about my background. Mm -hmm. So prior to working in real estate in a past life, I always say, I worked at a highly revered commercial architecture firm. And super corporate. And I loved doing it. But I was uh, quite young and it was never really a career for me. Uh, I was not an architect. I was an executive assistant to the president of the firm, which was a very privileged role to have. And about four years into it, Mr. Fox and Mrs. Marin walked in and actually recruited me. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had no intention of uh, either being in real estate or switching jobs. 
Um, but I was encouraged to just sit down with them and have a conversation with them about who they were, what uh, they believed in, and a specific role that they would have created for me, which at the time, surprise, surprise, was not a real estate agent, but it was a business development manager, which mm-hmm. was a mouthful. After meeting with them, I completely fell in love with their philosophy, how they uh, really thought about a client-focused approach. And I just felt like it was something very special that was brewing and I really wanted to be a part of it. This is actually a funny story. About two years into mostly partnering with you guys on the back end, one of our team members went on vacation and asked me to cover a showing for him. And I actually had no idea what I was doing at the time. But with my all-in attitude, I said, sure, why not? And ended up finding that individual a rental that I ended up negotiating an amazing price for because I had nothing to lose. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that client ended up referring me to three separate people. And then those three people referred me to another three people. And this went on for about a year. And I woke up one day and I said, I think I'm a real estate agent now. And that was eight years ago. And now I'm here and I'm an agent full-time. I have been for a while now. I absolutely love it. I cannot imagine doing anything else. And I always say I did not choose real estate. Real real estate chose me. And uh, I'm super grateful for it. And especially to have done it under Fox Marin. Because as we all know and see... Uh, There's a lot of bad habits that you can pick up in the industry, let alone being a loan agent. So I think having uh, that mentorship from you guys and the team uh, really was the biggest difference in my career. Oh my gosh. Oh, I remember when Ralph so nice I'm blurring up. I'm tearing up. I know, me too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember so well, like it was yesterday when oh. we had our first meeting with you. And mm-hmm. after our interview, and you were just so poised and articulate and prepared, and then you left the room, and I was like, well, I don't care what she costs. We have to have her join <laughs> the team. Like, I was like, it is done. And I'm just <laughs> so grateful that that all just worked out the way it did, and that you decided to take mm-hmm. that leap of faith. And I just feel like there has been a synergy from the second we met you. Totally. And I just have no doubt that. We will, we will all work together in some capacity until the end of our years. So I am, that didn't happen by happenstance. I think it was very serendipitous that first meeting and that recruitment process and how it all fleshed out. And I just am so happy to see you doing so well and so successful mm-hmm. and well respected and just crushing it. I'm so proud of you. So so happy to have you here and uh, no one better uh, to join such a wonderful conversation about the fall market. First time home buyers, should they buy in a changing market? And we are going to break all of this down for our viewership today. So thank you everyone for tuning in. We're going to dive right into some of our questions. We've got this excellent panel of experts that do have their boots on the ground every day working with real deal clients at different price points across the board. Uh, We're certainly going to focus on the buyer perspective today versus the selling perspective. We focused on that on our last podcast. So just keeping in mind that vantage point as to how we're addressing different things that are coming up in the news, the media, 
government policy and all of the instincts and intuition that are a big part of what we do. So diving in, as I mentioned. Okay, question number one. I'm going to start this with Ralph because this is very much a Ralph Fox question. Oh, God. (laughs) And we all just want to sit back and watch you answer it. And then we'll, we'll all layer in our thoughts, of course. So how have the recent interest rate hikes by the Bank of Canada impacted the Toronto housing market? I think it's had a tremendous impact on the market, both uh, from a financial standpoint and from a psychological sentiment standpoint. And it's still ever-changing because we are still in a climate of uncertainty given the most recent uh, actions and statements coming out of the Bank of Canada, especially as we head into the fall. Uh, We last year and going into early this year saw an increase of 400 basis points, which was literally the fastest rate increase hike we've seen in modern history without precedent. And many, including myself, were not sure what the ramifications would be on the market because real estate is probably the most sensitive interest rate market you could probably be working in. And never underestimating or doubting the strength of the resiliency of the Toronto market, we definitely had faith that it would definitely have the resiliency coming into the year, but we didn't know exactly what would happen specific to new listings. And lo and behold, uh, we saw a lot of buyers sit on the sidelines for the back half of last year as interest rates shot up with a wait-and-see attitude. And once the Bank of Canada signaled that they were ready to do a pause, we saw a lot of buyers now, given the certainty brought back into the market, at least short-term, felt comfortable enough to, to start buying again. And so we saw a lot of demand, and we saw continued and very limited supply, which was something nobody really could predict. I think one of the biggest mitigating factors to that is all of the banks being willing to work with distressed uh, landlords and homeowners by extending mortgage amortization rates out as far as uh, 90, 90 years in some cases. So uh, we never saw any forced selling. We aren't going to see any forced selling. And generally, I could say that the attitude with most owners, be it landlords or homeowners, is that the last thing they ever want to do is sell their Toronto real estate, combined with the reality of the majority of homeowners or landlords locking in at those lower rates and having two, three, four years still left at 2%, um, there's very little uh, motivation for them to make a move. And so we saw a lot of uh, very low month-over-month uh, transaction environments, 40-year lows for the last year as a result. And as prices shot up in the spring, uh, we saw things cool off with the surprise announcement from the Bank of Canada in June, raising interest rates with the second raise uh, in July. And so um, there's a lot, including myself, who questioned the wisdom of these most recent Uh, round of increases. There's some uncertainty now back in the market as to whether the what the bank will do in September. So we're waiting for the next inflation print to come out August 15th. And we're looking to see what the Bank of Canada is going to do and say on September 6th. It seems like the consensus is starting to form that they're not going to do a raise. But um, it's hard to really know what their intentions are this far out. So I think once we get over that hump of September 6th, we'll have a little bit better indication of what the fall will look like, both from a financial standpoint and from a buyer standpoint, 
Uh, and I think that will really set the tone. So in answer to your question, it's played a huge impact on the market. And it's just right now the market is continuing to work through um, the increases and at the rate that we saw happen over the last year and the uncertainty right now. But the thought is, is that going into 2024, at some point next year, the bank will be forced to pivot and start bringing rates down and hopefully relieving some of the pressure that's being built up as a result. So let's just be clear here for our viewers. August 15th, what are we looking for on that date? Uh, inflation print put out by um, Stats Canada, CPI. Okay. And then September 6th? Bank of Canada announcement as to their intentions to increase rates to pause or to actually bring rates down, which is something no one is expecting. Okay. And so it'll be it'll be one of the first two. And just so our viewers know, what's the current uh, rate by the Bank of Canada? Uh, I believe the overnight Bank of Canada lending rate is now at 5%. And then there's a stress test? Yes. So banks will, the bank lending rates will be above that rate. And then there is the stress test, which essentially means that uh, if you're qualifying for a mortgage, especially with a Schedule A bank, uh, you will have to qualify at the rate posted plus an additional 2% in order to qualify uh, with a lender. So that's pushing uh, qualification now uh, up to 7%, which is really going to put some, some more continued pressure on um, affordability. And just for first-time home buyers, what is a Schedule A bank? Schedule A Bank is the big five. Uh, bank of Canada, RBC, CIBC, Bank of Nova Scotia, and... Did I get the five? BMO, TD, something. It's one of those guys. All of those. The big ones that you'd recognize that are basically... The ones you know that have corner. branches. Yeah. yeah exactly. The ones yeah. that you have a debit card for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then what is the current the difference between the current interest rate in the US right now and the Canadian rate? Is there a significant difference between the two? There is. And it's one of the things that uh, often drives me a little crazy oh. is because our systems are fundamentally different. Okay. And so the um, an increase of 100 basis points in the US is the equivalent of 200 basis points here in Canada. Mm. And the reason is because of the way our banking systems are differently structured in that almost the longest term, almost all of our mortgages have here are five-year, meaning that they will turn over within a five-year window. Whereas in the United States, they get stretched out as far as 30 years. And we have also a lot of people on variables. So when the Bank of Canada raises the overnight lending rate and banks in turn do that, um, anyone who has a mortgage that is on a variable is immediately affected. And anyone who's renewing that year will mm -hmm. be affected. And within a five-year cycle, everyone will be affected. So it has much stronger impact here in Canada than it does in the US. And we're basically our at parity with the Fed overnight lending rate. So we do have the lowest uh, inflation in the G7. So uh, I don't know why the bank is acting this way. And the concern always is that if they tighten too much, it could cause a recession, right. be it a hard landing or a soft landing, although the definition of that seems to change by uh, whatever politician is talking at any given point in time. And what are your predictions, team, about the Bank of Canada announcement September 6th? Do you think they're going to hold, lower, or increase? Jess? 
I do think they're going to increase. Oh, I know. I, I, <laughs> I think that that's my prediction, but okay. I think that we have been in this situation before where we thought they were going to hold rates and then they decided that they didn't. And I think that based on the past policy changes, it's very obvious that they want uh, very aggressive measures. And I think that they probably wanted to see a lot more people potentially buy less homes based on the last rate increases. And that hasn't exactly happened. And I can tell you just looking at our own database, we still have a ton of active buyers. And I think that if they are looking to see um, an exponential change, the rates that have been introduced thus far has not given them that more galvanizing change. And so uh, I do think that they are going to increase them again. Okay. Ian, do you think so? No, I don't think they will. Okay. Actually, I'm going to play devil's advocate to that. <laughs> I, I think so. those last two were like a little ratcheting and I think that they may hold. But but I'm but I'm not I'm not saying that like I'm really convinced okay. that they're going to stay yeah. where they are. I'm saying I'm going to pick that option, but I'm not really 100% all in on that. Yeah, they've also told us before that they wouldn't and then they did. So maybe yeah, who really knows? And we always like an expression around Fox Marin, which is we'll yeah. see. We, we'll see. We'll yeah. see. What's your prediction, Corey? Oh, please hold, 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 hold. <laughs> Yeah, we just need yeah. a little bit more of balance, and I've talked about this in former podcasts. But it'd just be nice to be in a place where we can coach our clients one way or another, and just have a stretch of time where we have some stability in the marketplace. Um, so I feel like they're going to hold, but I think that's a little bit of just my optimistic attitude in general about life. So I'm bringing that yeah. to the table, not being somebody who is like taking always a deep dive into what's happening politically and economically in the U.S. or Canada for that matter. But I'm like hoping for a hold. I mean, it'd be really nice yeah. to see them lowered, but I think hold would be great. Ralph, what do you think? I think they can't be depended on to follow their word, nor do I think they can be depended on to do uh, what is within their mandate. Jessica was talking about earlier in regards to housing. Housing is not in their mandate. Their mandate is inflation and their mandate mm -hmm. is uh, employment. And their mandate is stability in the financial system. That is yeah, it. Get your paws out of there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, their, their range is supposed to be 2%. And uh, we are at 2.7%. 33% of inflation now is the cost of home borrowing, which has gone up because we've raised interest rates 400 basis points. So we're raising interest rates to stop inflation, which is causing inflation and even adding more inflation. So none of this, uh, to me, makes any sense. And I don't think that they can be counted on to do the right thing. And I do think, circling back to what Jessica said, is, is that either they are grossly incompetent or they're acting outside of their mandate mm -hmm. and actually trying to mess with the housing market yeah. and other things that they just shouldn't be dealing with. Um, I can't think of somebody or an entity that has operates under higher stakes that continually has gotten things wrong for three and a half years and some would argue 10 years and still have their job and continue to exist in the capacity that they are. And uh, I think the whole thing needs to be um, torn down mm -hmm. and built up from scratch. Yep. We need a shake up. 
Okay, that these are really great forecasts. Thank you so much for your input. I appreciate it. We'll have to see what happens. So viewers, please, please, please tune in that week of September 6th. We will be mm-hmm. definitely making commentary on that for sure. So Jess... Um, you work with a lot of wonderful first-time home buyers at different price points. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen these higher borrowing costs affect their sentiment? You said that our database right now is rather jam-packed, full of buyers that are out there looking. Yes. Have you seen firsthand a change in how they're looking at properties, feeling about properties, aggressiveness about properties? Like, what are you seeing? Boots on the ground. That's an excellent question. So the first thing I'll say is that I haven't seen a noticeable difference in the motivation buyers have when it comes to purchasing property. People still very much want to get their foot in the door if they don't have a foot in there already. And I'm even seeing purchasers with existing properties still willing to make that move, sell their home and move up, which is a very tricky logistical nightmare, especially in a changing market. As we know. And so I think the biggest difference that I have seen personally is I've seen our buyer clients become far more discerning about the type of property they are now willing to purchase. Uh, If we were to fast forward a year ago, which was one of the many peaks that we have seen, um, but in terms of activity, it was absolute pandemonium. Uh, properties were selling literally within hours of them being listed online. And it seemed like nobody really cared very much as to the quality of these properties. They just wanted to get their hands on something. It makes sense given how low interest rates were at the time. Um, But I think what nobody would have predicted is with the exponential rise in interest rates, that activity and overall sales prices would mirror that of what we saw last year. So um, while I think that buyers are still motivated, they are not willing to buy just anything like they did last year. But if they find a rare quality property, they are still willing to push the boundaries on what it takes to get that property. And so what happens is that buyers come to the table, they meet with us for the first time, that have been um, very much of the mindset that they have a lot of leverage based on the rhetoric that's being propagated in the media. The market's crashing, sales are down, sellers can't sell anything right now. We've all seen those headlines. And then they come to the table with a litany of priorities, wants, and needs. I would argue far more than what we're used to seeing in um, more commonly known competitive markets. And they're immediately in for a rude awakening. They cannot believe that they're still competing for properties once they select one. But it's really only those quality properties. So to summarize, if you have a condo or freehold home that is challenged in some major way, it might very much still sit on the market. But if you have a great space in a great location, high density area, close to transit, and um, it either has potential or is turnkey, we are still seeing multiple offers. And again, sales prices that uh, are highly comparable to those of last year where interest rates were significantly lower. And that was the most surprising to me. 
That's an excellent answer. And you're seeing this both in the condo asset class and the low-rise market as well? Yes. So I would say a few months ago, I noticed more concentrated demand in the freehold markets, um, which surprised even myself. But when you look at the inventory levels, it starts to make a lot more sense. Um, what we have seen happen is anytime there is tremendous demand or competition in the freehold sector, condos tend to follow. And the reason for that is as affordability becomes an issue, buyers' expectations will change far quicker than their decision not to buy. And I think at this point, most people realize, hopefully, that the window of opportunity to get your foot in the door when it comes to Toronto real estate is closing very, very quickly. And so instead of going after that freehold home, if it becomes too expensive, they then shift their expectations to the condo market. And so now I'm starting to see a little bit more activity in terms of buyer demand for those condos. Whereas a couple months ago, almost every buyer we had wanted a freehold home. And because freehold homes were selling at very impressive sales prices, I think they realized very quickly that that was a bit of a pipe dream. And now they've shifted their expectations to something a little bit more palatable. That completely makes sense. And Ian, when you're speaking with your buyers, again, across the board in terms of asset type, location, and price point, are you having mm -hmm. lots of conversations with your buyers about the economy, the future of the economy, interest rates? Or are they just focused on what they want, which is a place to live, a place to lay their roots, and a place to call their home? I think a, a part of the, the introduction has to do with the introduction and the education of, of new buyers is um is a lot about the market and finance and interest rates and i think after you begin the search and they've discussed their financing with a professional um, and gotten their pre-approval and figured out what their options are then that conversation tends to drop off until we see something like the interest rate increase and they've got to go back and see just how long their pre-approval is being held for is it 90 days 100 do they have, now have a deadline i've only had one person say but one, one first-time buyer said to me, I'm just going to, you can't convince me, I'm just going to go back to the sidelines and just wait and weigh my options. Everyone else, to Jess's point, has sort of said, okay, well, this is the environment we're in. Things are moving in this direction. I know what I want and you know, I'm going to find a way to do it. I was going to add to Jess's uh, excellent points um, that I think there's a bit more thoughtfulness about negotiation and a bit more thoughtfulness about um, improvements during bidding wars or offer dates. So uh, back when things were insane, they would say, you know, do you want to make an improvement? And without thinking about it, buyers would be like, throw another $20,000 at them. What, what does it matter? What is that, $7 every payment for me? It doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm seeing everybody whip out the calculator and be like, do I want to make that improvement? What does that translate yeah. to? and either holding or being very cautious about the way that they're moving versus the, pardon the expression, balls out um, way that they were moving before. So um, so I think that's where, it, that's where it comes through. That's where I'm seeing it is um, really looking at the data, really digging deep into um, pricing analysis, mm -hmm. making sure that they're not overpaying because they're paying more for the money they're borrowing now. 
And I would just like to add, don't get your news from Blog TO. No. <laughs> Yes, and we can certainly say from the sales side as well, when we've seen offers on properties that we've listed, that the buyers are demanding more from the seller or including conditions that we haven't seen in the last six to eight months, like condition of financing, condition of status review, condition of condo inspection or home inspection, and us as the selling agents having to be more open-minded and flexible in negotiation where, you know, a year ago, we would have laughed at an offer that included all these conditions. And now we're like, you know what, Mm -hmm. we're happy to collaborate with this potential buyer agent and the buyers that we can make a win-win on both sides. We don't know if we may see this price again from another buyer. So let's make sure we structure a deal where everyone sees this through. And you know what, in some regard, it's good when the buyer has the opportunity to make sure they've crossed their T's and dotted their I's on the financing right now, just to ensure that there is smooth um, closing between the time the deal goes firm and closes, because we want to ensure that we see a seamless transition for all parties uh, when it finally comes to the closing date. So that all makes sense. Okay, great input. Thank you so much. And Ralph, are mm-hmm. you seeing a difference between uh, on our buyer pool, a difference in the sentiment between the first time home buyer, like people who have never bought in Toronto before versus a more experienced buyer, somebody who's moving up the property ladder per se, or uh, an investor? Yeah, I think a couple things are interesting. We're seeing an awful lot of cash buyers and all cash buyers, maybe more so than we've ever seen before. And that is really, really surprising at all price points. And oftentimes it's parents assisting, but other times it's not. And so there's this whole class of buyers at all price points right now um, that is completely agnostic and unaffected by interest rates. And they seem to sort of have the belief or the strategy that if they bought a house, let's say all cash for a million dollars, when interest rates come back down, you know, at 2%, they could pull out 500 or 600 or even 800,000. The value of their property is probably going to shoot up. And now they have liquid capital with very little borrowing costs. And they've had the utility of acquiring a really great property and the opportunity to have lived in it. So um, I think that is something that we're seeing far more than I would have predicted. Uh, this far into the 400 basis point plus environment. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying that. And uh, I think the other thing is we are really seeing a complete withdrawal right now of investors uh, for the most part. Uh, Definitely on pre-construction, we're seeing next to no activity. And when we get the odd person to reach out to us, I mean, we're telling them, you know, the delta between buying Mm -hmm. pre-construction of 1700 versus what you could buy at a thousand or maybe $1,200 a square foot. It just doesn't make uh-huh. sense, uh, at now. And, and you're seeing that in sales. Sales are all time lows or going back to like 2013 or 2009 or something like that. So I think the investor sentiment in the pre-construction condo market, um, we're not seeing, uh, there's a lot of pressure on cap rates right now. We're not seeing too much interest or activity on the uh, multifamily Mm -hmm. side. Uh, And on the residential side, on the condo side, the numbers just don't make sense. Um, And so, you know, at six and a half percent, it's very hard, no matter how great the rental market is to make something come close to cash flow. So I'd say investors are sitting on the side, um, lots of activity at all levels of people with cash. Um, People really don't seem to doubt in a way that they used to 
the resiliency or long-term trajectory of the Toronto real estate market. We're not having those type of discussions. Well, what's this condo or house going to be worth in five years? I think there's a very clear understanding with most buyers uh, who are somewhat educated that the answer is it's going to be a lot more expensive. So what do you do about that now? Uh, and that's something I don't think we had the types of conversations we weren't having with people in 2017 or 2018. So that type of shift in overall mindset, I think, has really, really changed. Um, and I think overall, it's definitely a really interesting time. I think one of the other things, and it's sort of a hilarious joke on the team, is, is that people now are actually trying to buy a house that they actually like. <laughs> Because the market has been so intense over the past that people are just trying to get something or anything that loosely fits within their parameters because there is such little supply and extreme competition. And now the market's moving a little slower. Days on the market is creeping up. Inventory is creeping up. And at these higher interest rates, buyers are trying to make much more meaningful decisions. And so they're being very specific, going back to what Jess is saying, when they're going to pull the trigger, they actually want to like the house and they actually have the opportunity to buy a property and like it at a time that they wouldn't have had for many, 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 many years in, in the past. I have to just uh, add this little tidbit. I've had more buyer clients have the opportunity to go back and visit a property to even three times before submitting an offer and I'm continuously reminding them how lucky they are just to even have the ability to do that because we're so used to showing a property to someone and then literally writing up an offer in my car, leaving the property and they have five minutes to tour it and think about whether or not they want it before a lineup of people try to take it away from them. So it's been interesting to see buyers have that in what I think is a luxury now. And I think it's nice. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's not like you have 15 minutes to see this property and I need to know within the hour if you want to put an offer with no conditions on it. You have to let me know because I've got to type up the offer while I'm driving back to my computer. Yeah, which has happened the, before. The, yeah, I once yeah, showed a property for a client at 7.30 in the morning because I saw it go live. I ran over in my pajamas, reviewed it for them and I called them and I said, drop everything and get here right now. And they did. And there were already five other people in the house saying, how do you like our home? <laughs> and then we ended up getting it for them about an hour of later. Course. So it worked out. <laughs> Queen of acquisitions. Queen of acquisitions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. So given that there is a little bit more inventory coming online... Uh, and we'll talk about the stats briefly, and I'm going to jump into that. And then as we head towards the fall, generally it is a busier time. Sellers prepare their homes to go to market in the fall. Same with condo owners as well. So oftentimes this is a period where we see a ramp up in new listings. But I think this is just interesting to review. So for our viewers out there, there's something called months of inventory or the absorption rate. So if we did not list one more new property on the MLS system, how long would it take for Toronto to sell through that inventory? So since February, 
we've been at a very low inventory. Um, the months of inventory has been very low. In fact, we've been in a strong seller's market. So we've seen our absorption rate between like 2.3, 1.7, months of supply. So that's how long it would take for us to sell through inventory. In June, we were at the lowest we had been this year at 1.5 months of inventory. So that's like six weeks. That's nothing. Last, sorry, that was in May. And in June, we reached 1.95. So just under two months of supply. But as we look at the new stats that were just published by the Toronto Real Estate Board, they're starting to shoot up. In fact, they're up about 112% versus the month before. Our inventory now at the current, uh, using the current data is at 3.2 months of supply. So still a seller's market, but almost double the amount of inventory. So if I compare that to last year at this time, we're almost at the same rate. So July 2022, we had about 3.1 months worth of supply. So we do have more inventory out there. How do you think that's going to affect the fall market? And do you think that is going to show a trend by you know possibly slowing down on prices, slowing down on the velocity of transactions moving through the system? Will this change? seller's choice to list in September if they're seeing that there is more competition out there and maybe they will refrain from listing thinking that they are competing with too much supply in comparison to former months former months this year. What are your feelings about that, Jess? I do think that it's going to be a very strong consideration for both individuals, whether or not you're a buyer or a seller. I also think that part of the reason that we're seeing a little bit um, more months than typical is because we're in the summer and typically activity during that time is lower with most uh, buyers on vacation. Um, the other thing that I can tell you being boots on the ground is a lot of the supply that's online right now is not the greatest quality supply. Okay, And so I think that's also a contributing factor as to why properties are not being absorbed into the market as quickly as we're used to seeing in say May or June. Um, I think whenever a, an influx of fresh supply comes online, good quality supply, um, for some reason, I do tend to see uh, an increase in demand, typically from those buyers that are more passively looking and are influenced by, say, a Facebook or Instagram ad uh, and make that decision to purchase just because that perfect property presented itself at the right time. Um, so I think instinctually, I think in the fall, we are going to see a lower uh, absorption rate or lower months of inventory than we are currently at. Um, I can tell you that I personally have uh, a handful of buyers that are highly motivated, ready to make a move right away. It's just a bit of a waiting game. And I think there's a lot of people in the same boat that are ready to make that move but just so desperately need that good quality supply to come online. Um, because like I said before, our purchasers are more discerning now than they have ever been. They're very picky about what they want. Uh, rightfully so, they are paying more for it per month. And so um, as soon as that 
great quality opportunity comes online, I think that we're going to start to see that uh, that little bit of a rush again. So what is it? The sellers with good quality product don't want to list because they want want to wait and see? Like what... Where are these where are these great condos and great low rise properties and why are they not coming online? Ian? For right now, I would blame a little bit of that on seasonality. If you're working with a decent agent and uh, you're looking at the strategy of things, we're not listing things because it's July and August and so much of Toronto's population takes a break from real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have kids at home that are out of school. They're busy focusing on trying to keep them busy. Maybe it's camp, maybe it's cottage. Maybe it's Italy. <laughs> Everyone's in Italy except us. I just like to say, <laughs> everyone's in <Yeah>. Italy. <laughs> so so jealous of that. Um, so I think I think yeah, we're seeing an uptick in inventory as things linger from even as far back as May and June or July. People who are putting things out now, maybe a little bit of a knee jerk reaction to the last two interest rate hikes. Maybe ma and pa investors who basically are like, that's it. That 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 one's breaking me and I need to get rid of this thing. So I think I would say that condo inventory is probably what's going to push more into the fall and the freehold market will come back uh, in September strong. But to Jess's point, the quality things will go. And uh, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but that's kind of, okay. you know, I, that's my prediction hat. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to put these stats up on the screen so that our viewers can see. But our listing days on market are actually going up, but they still reflect last year, which is so interesting. So in May, our listing days on market. So this, again, for anyone listening, this is how long it's taking a condo or a home to actually sell was 16 days. Then in June, it was 15 days. But in July, it was 18 days, which is up 12.5% versus the month before. So things are taking a bit of a slower trajectory. But again, is that seasonality? Is that lack of great quality supply? Is that lack of uh, sellers wanting to put their product out in the summer and wait to capitalize on the fall market like we talked about in our former podcast? Which, Which is interesting is that last year at this time, same stats year over year, our listing days on market were about the same. So are we following a similar trajectory as last year? And it's just going to be really interesting to keep marking month over month versus year over year, which I think is telling a stronger story when we start carving out the data and taking that deeper dive. Ralph, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I feel like it goes back to what I said earlier. A lot will be dictated by the tone that's set by the Bank of Canada in September, not just by what they do, but by what they say. Um, so I think a lot will be affected by that, probably more so than any market I can say that we've experienced before. Um, I definitely foresee an uptick of inventory, uh, especially on the condo side. We're definitely seeing uh, more investors with or landlords just putting properties on the market that are tenanted, just hoping somebody's miraculously going to pay them mm-hmm. some ungodly some, um, but they're not super motivated sellers. And as we all know, it's very difficult to sell a property when it's tenanted. So I don't really see that having too much effect other than just maybe making the numbers look softer than they actually are. So I think we'll see some softness reported in the market. But I do think that the good quality properties will continue to have value and sell. Um, If I were to guess about what I think is going to happen. To be honest, I really don't know. 
Um, and I, I, we're in an environment at a time where every single economist and every single expert has been wrong and is wrong and continues to be wrong and sort of ending up being surprised. So that's always my parentheses whenever I'm talking about the future right now, short term, not long term, but short term uh, with the market. I think we'll see some softness over the fall, maybe going into uh, the winter months. But I think next year, things will turn around. I think it will very much mirror what we saw last year with a slowdown going into the end of the year and probably going into the spring next year. I think we'll see a strong bounce back, especially uh, if inflation continues to trend down and the Bank of Canada eventually has to pause for good or, or start to move its way down. The market will respond very favorably to that. And that's going to happen. It's just really just a question of when. So to me, when I look at the numbers, it looks like there's Mm -hmm. opportunity right now for buyers, first-time buyers or mover-uppers or even downsizers. And so I'm going to, again, I'll put this up on the screen um, for our viewers to take a look at because I think when you have a visual aid, it just really helps you like absorb what's actually happening. So Treb, the Toronto Real Estate Board, publishes their stats every month. The latest stats are for July. And so overall in the 416, prices overall are up 4.3% versus last year at this time. So that's a pretty healthy number considering all the ebbs of flows we've seen with interest rates. But what I think is a more telling story is when we start looking at prices um, month over month versus year over year. So when I look at the difference between the average cost of a detached house in July versus May, for example, um, we're actually seeing prices, uh, let's see, down 14% since May. And then when I look at semi-detached houses, the prices have gone down 10% versus May. Townhouses down 4.6% and condos down 4% since May. So month over month, we're seeing a softening on prices. Now, should that not be motivating for buyers right now? Is this an opportunity for them to slip into the market and maybe grab something? Maybe it's not as polished as they might like it to be or as character-driven or as turnkey as Jess was discussing. But like when I see numbers like that, I'm like, maybe this is just a small window of opportunity. How do you, how do you feel about that, Jess? I absolutely very fervently feel like right now is an excellent opportunity for many buyer clients, regardless of the type of property that they're looking for. But they need to have an open mind. And like you said, Corey, they need to be willing to fix it up if that's what it requires. Anytime seasonality... Seasonal differences rather affect the market. Uh, Christmas, New Year's, people in Italy. <laughs> it is always a great opportunity for people to make a move. When, uh, well, actually, Ralph, you always remind me of this excellent Warren Buffett quote. And he says, be fearful when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful. Um, or you can uh, rephrase it to be greedy when people are distracted. <laughs> and right now, people are distracted. It's the end of the summer. Parents are busy trying to get their kids um, registered in school. People are traveling. Um, Nobody is really looking at listings like they used to or like they will be come the fall. And so I think that if you can be bold 
and you can make decisions quickly and not get analysis paralysis when a great opportunity comes online, which many people are doing right now, then there are tremendous opportunities out there for you where you're dealing with far less competition Mm -hmm. and you will have far more leverage as a purchaser. And one thing that I've told my own buyer clients is that even if you find a quality opportunity where you find you're even competing for it, in my eyes, it is still a win and still an opportunity. And even Ian, you touched on this as well, is that when I determine a range of value for that property, it is selling at the higher range of value in the worst case scenario, but we're not seeing it sell over the range of value like we've been used to seeing in years uh, prior. And so for me, I think that's such an opportunity because a year ago, we would have to have very difficult conversations with our buyer clients, essentially saying, if you want this gem of a property, you're going to have to overpay for it. Yeah. So someone might think, well, if I'm paying the high end of value when interest rates are at an all-time high, how is that a win? They're not realizing that very quickly the market can change and you will now have to pay more than market value to get that property, which directly impacts how long you need to hang on to that property before you start making a decent return on your investment. And I think that anyone that buys now is going to see tremendous returns over a short period of time versus those that buy at the actual top of the market. I could not agree more. What is it about FOMO and buyers? Why why do people just want to buy property in that frenzied state? Ralph, you look like you're ready to jump in. What is it about that in yeah. Toronto? It's a pack, the pack mentality. You must you must know me or something, I, Corey. I, think that's weird. I think um, I do. Yeah, yeah, you know my body language. <laughs> I'm very interesting. We'll have to talk about that later. <laughs> it's really interesting. Like I've I've heard an analogy or something similar to this, where if you were in a store and you loved everything in the store, and all of a sudden everything in the store was twenty percent off for that day, would you not be super excited about that and see that as an opportunity? Um, no. Why wouldn't you in real estate? And, and, and that's something that's so interesting because real estate, residential real estate especially, is so emotional. And so people only tend to get super excited when the market is, is shooting up. Yeah. <laughs> or they, wanna, they say they want to take the approach that you know, they're waiting to time the market. And it's one thing that I can say emphatically is you will never be able to time the market. Ever. And some of the largest, greatest real estate minds and investors and developers have all gone bankrupt trying to attempt to do that. And you yourself, other than sheer luck, will never be able to do that. Because at the end of the day, you never know that a market is bottomed out until it's already on its way back up. And one of the things... There was a big study, I believe it was at Harvard, where they, they tracked uh, the, the stock market for 30 years. And they found that all of the gains, 98% of the gains happened on nine days. And if you were not in the market on those nine days, you would have shown a 2% return. So it's more a question about 
understanding the long-term financial opportunity based on supply and demand and immigration and lack of supply, what has got us to this point in Toronto real estate and what that will mean for the future and not specifically trying to time this. And interestingly enough, Ian and I were talking to uh, new potential clients of Fox Marin um, and we were talking about this very thing and we were saying anecdotally how when we have clients who are so trying to control everything and time everything when they go and list their property to like people we could be talking to years about selling and they're trying to time it so hard. Those are the ones that somehow end up listing their property March 2020. So true. And, and those are the ones who just keep it's, it, I don't know if it's just karma <laughs> or irony playing a cruel hand of uh, poker. Um, but if you try and, and, and overtime the market, the market will always outsmart you. It will always move faster than you if you're thinking short term. But if you're looking five, 10 years down the road, the only way you can in real estate and you make a good decision based on that, as Jessica is saying, it's a great opportunity and you're going to do really well. Short-term pain for long-term gain. Totally. And also, it's always about time in the market versus timing exactly. the market. Jess, so proud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to throw out what the current average cost of properties are in the 416 right now, just to give some context and color around that. And then I want to talk about are there particular neighborhoods or types of properties that might offer better value for first-time home buyers? So the average cost of a detached house now is $1.64 million in Toronto. Semi-detached, just over 1.2 million. Your average townhome or row home, a million bucks. And your average condo, not a cheap asset anymore, 750000 So if you're guiding a first-time home buyer towards a particular neighborhood or asset class, is there some direction you would give them knowing what you guys all know about the market and working with such great clients of Fox Marin? Ian, you want to toss uh, some ideas into the mix? Well, of course, the client's wants and needs always come first. And then, of course, we have to look at their budget. I would never try to steer someone towards something, but uh, right now I feel like there is more room for negotiation and there is a good opportunity for you to pick up something in the condo mm -hmm. sector without having to compete. So I, I think if condo living is something that you had in mind already and you're not dead set or, or have a lifestyle that demands that you require, you, you need a freehold property, I would say that is a great place to slip in right now while others are being fearful. Totally agree. Ralph? I'm going to go both ends of the spectrum here. Mm. So for certain types of investors or first-time buyers, I love the little guys. Nothing in the last five years has outperformed junior bed one bedrooms and studios. Nothing. On a rental basis and on a... Um, uh, appreciation basis because of affordability, they always, always outperform. From an investor standpoint, you have a lower cost of acquisition. And in a down market, you're protected. Uh, very dissimilar to a larger unit where you know you have higher turnover with roommates. Um, they're harder to rent out. Uh, you tend to have more issues with them. Higher and you're putting a lot more 
Yeah, and you're put and and if there's a downturn like COVID, for example, and you have to give breaks on rent, you're not breaking the bank by having to do so. So I've always been a fan of the little guys, uh, and you know, I I couldn't live that way now. But I look at some of these cute little units, and I'm like, my gosh, that would have been fun to live like that in my 20s, okay. and I would have been happy in a great location. And that's the way people live in mega cities all over the world, and. That will be the reality here when we hit $2,000 a square foot. That's just what life in any other major city would be. Sorry to me interrupt. I just want to say that living in your own private studio versus sharing a house with six people in one washroom when we were all in our 20s would have been much more enjoyable. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Felt like a millionaire. (laughs) Would have been like, this is the most amazing thing to have my own 400 square foot studio in like Liberty Village or Canary (laughs) Park or wherever. Or, mm-hmm. or living in a basement underground. Oh, yeah. I never did a basement, but I did do the yeah. roommate thing with the one washroom for many years. So I'm always like, oh my gosh, if I had had my own studio with a little balcony, I would have I would have stayed there for 10 years. Like, no problem. I still probably mm-hmm. could do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. And Ralph, well, you said... When, you- I, when, I was, when I was in my 20s, I don't think they had invented bottle service yet. So <laughs> I think we're talking two very different paradigms <laughs> without dating myself. I'm talking about the filter that I have on uh, my camera here. Oh my gosh. And then the other side of your uh, paradigm you're going to mention? I'm going to go ultra luxury. Oh. And I'm going to hit it right at the other end. I don't think there is an ultra luxury market here now, but it's coming. And if you look at all these other major cities where you're looking at like, you know, these billionaire towers, you know, going at, you know, $10,000 a square foot and all of that, that will come here. And I see that as a really good long-term opportunity for investment um, into ultra-luxury because ultra-luxury will be coming here soon. Ultra-luxury condo? Or homes. Hmm. Or homes. And luxury homes, what neighborhoods would you be like doing like the, the Rosedale, the Forest Hills and the Bridal Paths? Potentially, but I'm also being agnostic. Like I think super penthouses and those type of properties, um, either if you can acquire them or put them together, I think one day will have a phenomenal uh, upside because I think there will be demand for that type of amenities and services and lifestyle. And it's just not here yet. And I might be talking 10 years too early about this. But you're seeing if you're seeing it in other major cities and you're looking at the growth that Toronto has and you're looking at the wealth that this city is attracting, I think it will come. And it's not something you hear people talk about no. either. And I thought that was an interesting sort of thought that has come to mind. Like something a billionaire would want to own in 10 years and have a place in downtown Toronto. You know what I would like to own? Doesn't exist. Is the apartment hmm. that was showcased in succession. <sighs> That is a gorgeous apartment. Oh my God. Like, I'm just like, that is real estate. That is a baller apartment. (laughs) Or or Jennifer Aniston's apartment in Good Morning America. Oh, oh yeah. No, yeah. That was was, (laughs) the morning show. The morning show. (laughs) And John John Hamm's joining the third season, I noticed. That's such a good casting. I think that's really good. Yeah. Um, Jess, do you have any predictions on this or any uh, insight you'd like to add in terms of like particular neighborhoods you'd want to guide a first-time home buyer to in terms of value or asset class? I don't know that I have a specific area. Um, one thing I know with certainty is that you can never underestimate Toronto's potential. 
However expensive we think it is right now, it is about to get a lot more expensive. And I know we have said this before. And there's so many reasons that we can get into on another podcast. Um, But I think that if you are thinking about purchasing property, if you are doing so in a high-density area, ideally connected to transit, close to green space, that is in a burgeoning community, that is in Toronto proper, not in Mississauga, Hamilton, although those are great areas, I think that if you are in Toronto, and if you can get a slice of that pie now, you are going to set yourself up for financial success for many, many, many years to come. And the window of opportunity to do so is closing far quicker than I think any of us even realize. To just inquire about that a little bit more, what about high-density areas that are close to transit, close to green space, very walkable, like City Place or (laughs) Fort York or... Liberty Village. You're going to say Liberty Village. <laughs> how do you how do you feel about communities like that? And are you pro or no? Okay. So here's what I learned about those communities. While I think as a team we are not big fans of those communities, if you take even the worst condo in the city, like let's just say uh, ice condos. I, that's most I can say too. That is the yeah. worst. That is the worst. Or the condos uh, no, along that, that's just the worst. and yeah. Lisgar. That says enough. Anyway. Or Mercer. Even if you take those condos and you look at how they have performed over five years, they have still appreciated. It's mm-hmm. the rate of appreciation where you'll see some condos perform better than others. Um, I've always been a fan of boutique condos. So the mid to low rise, the reason for that is because they tend to be of a higher quality when it comes to the actual suites. And the other thing that not everyone considers is that when you go to sell your condo and you live in a 50, 60, 70 story tower where the same unit type is repeated on every single floor, the chances of an identical suite coming online at the same time as your listing goes live is pretty good. And what happens when buyers have options is it directly impacts the success of your listing. Mm -hmm. We talked so much on this podcast about having quality, rare properties. And I think that when you have ownership of a condo in a boutique condo, uh, where it's more one of maybe two or three, that maybe come out once every couple of years, you've now created urgency for a buyer. And that purchaser, like our own purchasers, would be willing to push the boundaries on what it takes to acquire that property. Because if they don't get it, it might be a year or two before that same property comes online. And how expensive will it be when that happens? And so I think that if you focus less on cookie cutter, how often is this type of property going to come online? and focus more on uniqueness, uh, provided it's in an accessible location, or at least have plans for it to be an accessible Mm -hmm. location long term. That is a really great way to protect your investment and ensure that you're seeing um, maximum uh, returns. Totally. More end users, less rental centric, more pride of ownership, Mm -hmm. more residential in feeling you know, Mm -hmm. better services and amenities. People care for the property overall. 
yes. condo board is more invested in the long-term financials of the building and the reserve fund and um, it, maintenance fee increases and such. So totally could not agree more. And that's not to say that if you pick up a great price at one of the communities that we just mentioned and you pick up oh, a great unit and you rent it out, that's awesome. But mm-hmm. if you're like looking for an end user opportunity and something that's going to appreciate it at a faster and higher rate, I could not agree more with that mm-hmm. boutique luxury or uniqueness that comes with a lot of these smaller, low to mid-rise buildings for sure. The other thing I do want to mention about rentership, I think a lot of people focus on what is the ratio of owners versus renters in this building. If we're talking about a mid to low rise building, I think it's important for people to realize that renters are inevitable and the ratio of renters to owners is just going to increase over time. So I would focus less on that because that's a really difficult thing to avoid. But again, if your building is well-maintained, I don't know if you've ever read that book, The Tipping Point, but Mm -hmm. generally when you see environments that are upheld to a high standard, that mindset tends to permeate into those in that environment. And I think even if you're a renter and you see, wow, this place is really nice. It's so well-maintained. Everyone respects the common elements. They clean up after themselves. Sometimes that tends to um, ignite uh, encouragement for them to do the same. So um, yeah, a lot of people focus on the rentership. But I think especially with the the smaller buildings, it's less of an issue. I don't think that it's going to be Armageddon-like people people think it will be. Great answer. Speaking of rents, I think this is just interesting. And it's something that we talked about multiple times on this podcast, but I'm going to put this up on the screen. But we talked briefly about home prices slipping a little bit since May, even though they're up year over year. I think it's really interesting to dive a little bit into the current rental rates. And Ralph, you touched on studio apartments as being an excellent asset class to invest in. And I think this is uh, a great way to leverage that very um, opinion. So the average studio now in Toronto rents out for $2,200 a month. 2200 a month, up, up hmm. 4.8% versus last month and up 9.4% versus last year. The average one bedroom costs $2,600 per month to rent, up 3% versus last month and up 7% versus last year. And a two-bedroom condo average rents around 27 2800 up 6% versus last month and 11% versus last year at this time. So let's flip to this old adage, the question that we ask all the time, is it smart for first-time invest, sorry, first-time buyers to consider renting or should they try to make that move and purchase? I feel like the writing's on the wall if you can pull it off. Ian, do you want to jump I, in? I, I agree. I agree. I think it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, I don't even have much to add if it is possible for you to come up with claw, check behind those couch cushions, find your deposit somewhere, Mm -hmm. ask the bank of mom and dad if it's an option, um, get somebody to co-sign for you. But by all means, yes, purchase now if you can versus renting. And are interest rates higher? Absolutely, they are. 
you're paying a bit more in interest, but there's a portion there where you're paying yourself. And of course, you're getting appreciation value on the flip side as well. Ralph, do you want to add any color to that? Yeah. Um, if you rent, a mortgage is getting paid. You're just paying your landlord's mortgage. Mm-hmm. And the greatest opportunity that exists in Canada is the fact that when you have profit on the sale of your principal residence, that profit is tax-free. If you then take those two factors and combine it with the ability of leverage, meaning you can put down 20% and have secured property at 100% of, at 80% loan to value, it now means you can put down $200,000 on a million dollar property. And let's just say on paper, the market goes up on average as it has for the last 20 years, 10%. It means you've shown a profit of $100,000. And that 100000 is tax-free, which would mean if you're in the 50% tax bracket, you would have to make $200,000 to make that 100000 You've almost paid it back, your deposit, in that first year on paper, theoretically. And that does not also take into account the fact that you're paying down your mortgage monthly versus somebody else. So the ability to leverage, to pay down your own mortgage, and to take profit tax-free in a market and in a city and in a country like Toronto and Canada, I don't know where you're you're going to find a better, more stable, long-term opportunity with utility, something that you can live in, than Toronto real estate. And I think many people get sidelined with the idea of not wanting to be weighted down or we'll wait and see. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is, is you're never, ever, ever going to be able to outsave the Toronto real estate market. And the smartest thing you could ever do would be to acquire a property in Toronto that you can call home if you can. And if you can't get exactly your dream property, there's a thing called the property ladder and you can work your way up it slowly, progressively over time. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's long-term wealth. And this is the greatest and and most used and utilized path that you're going to find in Canada. Ralph, with the expected economic recovery and rising immigration, your favorite topic uh, in 2024, probably in 2025, obviously, how should first-time potential uh, buyers position themselves uh, for the fall this year, knowing that is coming up ahead? There's two parts to the equation. One is the long-term, two is the short-term. I think in the short-term, there's going to be a lot of noise, a lot of fear, a lot of data, some of it relevant, others completely irrelevant, a lot of emotionality. And I think if you just have the ability to zoom out and look at the last 25 years of Toronto real estate, and look at what those future trend lines look three, four, five years down the road, the vision becomes very, very clear. Uh, If you keep yourself in this endless loop of BlogTO, Now Magazine, uh, all of... (laughs) Is that Now Magazine around? (laughs) 
No, I think it's over. I don't know why I said that. That's the one like you would get on the corner. It was like free on the corner and you would... Yeah. I used to love Now Magazines where you got all the information about the club. I do actually think it is still being published. Oh, online? Online. I think it's online. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you, uh, you know, keep your mind in that loop of Blogtio, McLean's Magazine. Toronto Life. Toronto Life and your main source of information are those media outlets and your Uber driver, that's a recipe for just being so overwhelmed and scared that you'll probably end up doing nothing. And in a few years' time, you'll look back and regret upon not having acted in this window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is, is to tune out all of the noise and fear and emotionality Zoom out, look at the big picture. And I think once it becomes clear, the level of population growth, the level of millennial demand, the limited choked supply levels we are having and is only going to get worse in the future. If you just tune out everything and just extrapolate supply and demand, the two basic factors that determine price and you look at how that's played out over the last 25 to 30 years, and you think about what that is going to look like three to five years down the road, all the fear and all the noise goes away very, very quickly. And then if you can get to that point, then it starts to become a lot easier to try and figure out what the best decision is for you. And knowing that in the future, whatever you end up with, especially if you make a smart decision or work with the queen of acquisitions, that you could be setting yourself up for a big, big future. And what could be more exciting or inspiring than that? Great answer. And Jess, so we deal with a lot of first-time home buyers where their parents are helping to finance the acquisition. We call them the bank of mom and dad. We all wish we had our own version of that, I'm sure. (laughs) And they're heavily involved in the process, obviously, because they're having, they're bankrolling the whole thing. What advice would you give to the parents that are involved about the market right now? What to buy, where to buy, and what's going down, boots on the ground in regards to fall 2023? My advice to the parents would probably be to be boots on the ground with us. Because I think a lot of the parents are coming to the table with the idea or notion that real estate is still operating how it operated back when they purchased properties in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And a lot of them, especially those that lived through the small market crash in the 90s, have that same fear instilled into them that that's going to happen again very soon. Um, And so I think that when I initially meet with buyer clients and their parents are heavily involved, they have all sorts of opinions and thoughts on the type of property that they should purchase and all of the conditions that should come with that purchase. But the second that they're out in the field with us, and monitoring how properties are quickly absorbed into the marketplace and the terms of which they are acquired, uh, it's a huge wake-up call for them. And I see uh, the same path with all of them where they come to the table very stubborn and very much of the mindset that you know their kids should have everything that they ask for and you know this brand new 
painted house that even though it's 100 years old, it doesn't matter. It should be professionally cleaned and walls fully painted and renovate the kitchen for us to buy it. And then they're like, oh, we actually can't ask for anything at all. And then they look back and they wish that they had been less stubborn about the properties that their children had offered on before because it ended up meaning that they didn't get the property. And they either lost out on a great opportunity or they ended up paying a hell of a lot more for the exact same thing because that's how long it took for them to get it. So I think that the best thing that a parent can do is to just get out in the field, see a bunch of properties, see how they perform, see how many offers they get. And um, I mean, it's the same advice that we give to our buyer clients, right? The best way to learn about what's happening in the market is not by reading market reports, because by the time you read them, they're outdated. They're reporting on statistics from a month ago, is to get tactile. Get out there, see a bunch of properties, see um, you know what the competition is like and how aggressive it is. And that will not only prepare you when it's your turn to pull the trigger by tempering expectations and figuring out the right strategy to approach, um, but it will also uh, give you the best indication of what's going on in the marketplace, far better than any market watch report you read, regardless of the source that it comes from. That's excellent advice. And I agree completely, especially because I believe a lot of parents are coming in from outside area codes like your 905 and your 705 and are not used to the velocity of our marketplace, the types of properties that are here, uh, the age of the properties. We're not looking at cookie cutter suburban homes where you're seeing the same home over and over again, where it's very easy to determine value based on the latest comp down the street. Um, obviously, things like home inspections, bidding wars, bully offers, non-conditional offers are all very new to this type of buyer and buyer parent. Um, and I certainly agree that the education process and coming along for the ride really makes a big difference in giving them confidence that the money that they're giving to their kids to move forward with this asset and this acquisition is a smart move to make, but you can't understand it with from a bird's eye perspective. And certainly swooping in at the last second to see the property the day before offers is not a good thing to do. And we call them helicopter parents where, you know, they come in, they fly in, you know, like just at the nick of time to come and kibosh the whole thing. Because they're like, oh my God, you want to buy this like dilapidated shack in South Riverdale for, you know, $1.6 million? Why don't you come move to Woodbridge? You could get this house for, you know, you could get a mansion for $1.6 million. Well, I don't know if you can do that actually in Woodbridge anymore. You <laughs> used to be able to. Maybe we're going in a little bit further these days, but I could not agree more. Like you got to get in the trenches, parents, if you really truly want to understand where your kids want to live. And if you're going to be giving them the down payment or you're going to be buying the house outright, get out there and see properties with your kids and your broker of choice um, so that you can truly understand the process and, and what they're buying. Boys, do you want to add anything to that? Ralph, you're nodding yeah. your head. Yeah, for sure. First of all, I think Jess could not be more accurate with that statement. However, there's always an interesting paradigm when kids come to us because they're like, oh, we don't need our parents' help. No, we have all the say. No, we're good. Like, we're, we're good. We're going to do this. We don't need our parents. I know they're giving us some money, but don't worry about that. We have all the decision-making power in this. 
I know they might be on that first initial call just to make sure you're not insane, queen of acquisitions and, and broker of record. But after that, we're good. Like, we're good. And don't call my parents. I don't even want my parents CC'd in them. <laughs> and then general in any of the emails. And then what happens is, is when that holy shit come to Jesus moment happens and they're about to offer on a property and there's 14 offers on it. Mom! Dad. And then all of a sudden, mom and dad are like, hey, I, I think this is getting serious. We better get involved to see what they're spending our $1.8 million on. And then they come and then all of a sudden you're having separate conversations with the parents, separate conversations with the kids, emotions are flaring and it becomes this huge goulash of emotionality and childhood grievances and husband-wife paradigms and experiences from 37 years ago before the internet was even invented, all coming into this whole hot mess. And it becomes very challenging to navigate when you're just trying to be in the middle and advocate for everybody's best interest and mental health and well-being, including our (sighs) own. And so it's always a very interesting um, situation in those type of paradigms. But if, if everybody can be on the same page and involved from day one, then it leads to a lot more... Higher, a higher probability of a better outcome in a much more seamless and quicker pace. Yeah, yeah. I think we're all going to have something to say about this one. I think further, just to Ralph's point, let's talk about education and experience and old dogs and new tricks. So you take your your first time buyer kids, and there's, here's here's the line right where they're getting smarter and smarter and closer and closer, and this is over weeks if not months, right? <laughs> and then you finally get to that <laughs> offer date, and the parents are down here with no education and no experience and they jump in at the last second and you have to educate and give them the experience they didn't have all at the 11th hour. And let me go back to that old dogs and new tricks. We all know how somebody who's a bit more senior, their absorption rate of information might be a little slower (laughs) to a new concept or some new technology. So yeah, parents, if you're going to be part of the process, be there from the beginning. Even if you're not coming to the properties, be part of it and watch what's going on don't come in at the 11th hour. And also just for the record, I was really surprised by Jess's answer because I thought she was going to say, my advice to parents is stay the hell out of my way. (laughs) Just back off, mom and dad. (laughs) I'm the queen of acquisitions. Have you not heard? Oh, Jess has learned from experience. I think Jess has worked with more parents than anyone else on this team. Uh, Probably. I think 100% and some challenging ones too. The The other thing I find hilarious without making gender stereotypes is the dad slash home inspector walking through the house. I don't know why, but dads in this role, especially more so if they know nothing about renovations or contracting are like, Oh yeah, it looks like that uh, downpipe uh, basement there. I don't know. What's that going to cost? $20,000 to replace that downpipe. What's this thing? It's a stove, sir. <laughs> How do we know it's a stove? <laughs> Did the seller say it was a stove? Is there a stove inspector that we can get? Oh my God, that's so terrible. Hilarious. Has anybody looked in the stove? <laughs> oh my God, that is so terrible. How do we know this, safe, this stove safe is safe? for my daughter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
my daughter would never cook on a gas stove. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Uh, so true. Just Google dads and real estate and you'll come up with a thousand Yeah, memes. the memes are fantastic. That's, that's how prolific the problem yeah, is. The memes yeah. are fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's kind of wild that we are uh, approaching the fall market. Like we really are approaching it. Like we're like two or three weeks away. And I would like for all of us to be able to provide our top three insights or predictions for fall 2023 from the buyer lens. So three sentences or, or less as to what you anticipate for fall 2023 and what words of advice would you give for buyers as we approach the new season um, kickstarting in about three weeks from now. I'm going to pass the torch to Jess to start. Then I'll go Ian, Ralph, and then me. Buyer activity is going to remain strong. Mm -hmm. Listing activity is going to increase. So more inventory. And I think prices overall are going to stay where they are and maybe even slightly increase, especially relative to where we are today. Okay. Um, and then as we near the end of the year, November, December, things will taper off again. And that will be another opportunity uh, for potential buyers if they're willing to take the risk. I love it. Ian? I think the freehold market is going to uh, spike uh, between Labor Day and Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see some prices that are that are pretty good without being through the roof. Um, I think the condo market pricing-wise will stay the same. Uh, largely fueled by inventory being put out by Monpa landlords who uh, have tempted properties. Mm -hmm. So I think buyers in that range will have um, uh, some options. Yeah, I'm curious to see what happens with that, but I'm, I'm standing by my decision that I don't think they'll, in they'll increase in September. That's my third prediction. Okay. My advice uh, to anyone looking at buying this fall is to cut out all the noise and fear and misinformation. Uh, zoom out and think long-term. And don't overanalyze. And I think if you can follow those three guidelines, um, the course of action will become very clear as you get into the process. And if you work with somebody at the skill level uh, as a queen of acquisitions, um, I think you'll position yourself to make a really great strategic long-term move. Okay, excellent. And I think that a lot of this is going to depend on the announcement on September 6th. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be some incredible opportunities. I think that this is a really beautiful window for first-time homebuyers to enter the market with confidence, knowing that some short-term pain will service long-term gain. Uh, I think that the condo market is probably going to be more robust with inventory as well, um, mirroring what Ian said and perhaps a little bit of softening there, which means opportunity. Yes. And I, I think that the low-rise market, particularly under 1.8 million, is going to be quite robust, especially in neighborhoods that are connected to the city via transit or walkability or have upside potential or are trendy. I think that the pre-construction market is certainly going to suffer. And I think the luxury market is going to be pretty soft on both the condo side and the 
low-rise side in luxury neighborhoods like Rosedale, Forest Hill, Bridal Path, and Lawrence Park. All right, well, we're just going to have to wait and see because we're not that far away. Oh my gosh, this means sweater weather is soon around the corner. Corey, it also means much better hair days, <laughs> which I can't even tell you how happy that makes me. So, <laughs> Summer's going by so fast. It went by so quickly. Well, so, well it's still here for a bit. It but. is, but it did. It went by so fast. Well, I just wanted to thank everyone for such a brilliant conversation. I just could not be happier to have a discussion about the fall 2023 market with this group of people right here. Boots on the ground, buyers, you've got great advice from excellent brokers with tenured experience and great insights. So thank you so much for all being here. I just loved everything you had to say. And I hope this has inspired people out there to get out there, tactile, looking at properties, whether it's a condo, whether it's a low rise or whether you're looking to scoop up an investment in an amazing opportunity or a small window of time. Thank you so much for all your insights. Ian, would you like to take us home today? Absolutely. Let me just also thank Jessica for joining us today and being our special guest. She did an amazing job, I think. We loved it. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a privilege. And there we have it, listeners. From the upcoming Bank of Canada's interest rate decisions to the ever-evolving dynamics of the Toronto real estate market, We've traversed a lot today. Whether you're a first-time buyer contemplating a purchase, an investor evaluating the market, or a parent hoping to guide a child through their first property (laughs) journey and maybe ask about a stove, the landscape of fall 2023 offers unique challenges and opportunities. As we close this episode, remember that knowledge is power and staying informed is the first step in making the right move in any market. Until next time, may the Toronto Real Estate Force be with you. Corey? What do we want our listeners to know? I want them to know that they can contact us anytime because we're super nice and fun and knowledgeable. And hilarious. And hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) We'll always check the stove for you. And Ralph, uh, what, what do we want our listeners to do, please? Well, first of all, we want them all to give themselves a big hug for making it through the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and watching us. And I really just love, 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 love saying this. Please be sure to smash that subscribe button down below. (laughs) And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye, Bye, guys.